Hello, it's Monday, November the 8th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up. Why more and more women are using an app to rent out their dresses and also to pay to borrow them from somebody else. Colleges at Oxford University rightly being criticised for accepting what's been called dirty money, millions in fact, from the family of the fascist, racist Sir Oswald Mosley. We'll inhale up to 7,000 microplastic particles every day, which could be a threat similar to tobacco and asbestos, according to a new study. But first, companies which dump millions of tonnes of sewage into our waterways are facing calls for a tax on their profits to pay for the cleanup. Companies which dump millions of tonnes of sewage into Britain's rivers, lakes and seas are facing calls for a tax on their profits to pay for the clean-up. Lib Dem leader Ed Davey made the call before Parliament voted on the Environment Bill. The tax would be 16% on pre-tax profits. I'm joined by Daisy Cooper, Deputy Leader of the Lib Dems. Uh, Daisy Cooper, part of the problem with this, these companies dumping sewage in the sea is even if they're fined, the fine is less than it would cost them to put in a proper infrastructure to dispose of the waste in a more uh, environmentally friendly way. Well, I mean, longer term, Liberal Democrats would like to see these companies reformed and turned into public interest companies so they had much uh, stronger duties to protect the environment. But we have an immediate crisis here, which is that uh, these water companies can pump raw sewage into our rivers, into our chalk streams and onto our beaches. And therefore, we need immediate action. And that's why we're calling for this particular sewage tax, which would raise around £340 million per year year to, to tackle this. As far as we're concerned, these water companies need to uh, pay their fair share. It's their mess. They need to help clean it up. And the th- what would you, the three hundred and forty million pounds it would generate, Daisy? Would that go to s- investing in some form of uh, proper st- infrastructure for uh, waste, or would you do something else with the money? We would like to see it used directly for actually cleaning up our rivers, whether that's fixing sewage leaks or whether it's actually literally cleaning up the rivers where there has been some form. Of, of sewage pollution. I think there does need to be um, uh, work to infrastructure as well, and this could potentially fund some of that. Uh, but longer term, we need to see water companies investing more of their, their own money into those longer term, um, uh, longer term infrastructure projects. But this particular tax would be about cleaning up our rivers and, as you say, doing this, these, targeted, um, these, these targeted interventions to fix the, the parts of the infrastructure where we have the worst problems. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Thames Water... Um, which made 434 million in pre-tax profits last year, um, pumped into one river alone for almost 1,800 hours raw sewage. For 1,800 hours. It's a staggering statistic, isn't it? It is utterly, utterly staggering. Um, And I think the, the huge scale of public outcry shows just how seriously the public take this issue and how seriously um, badly wrong the Conservative government have got it. Um, you know, the Environment Bill was almost completely and utterly silent uh, on this particular issue. And I think it was shocking that the Conservatives opposed um, a proposal to actually try and uh, ban the raw sewage, you know, to, to ban uh, raw sewage mm. from being pumped into rivers. What we're suggesting now is an immediate tax that could tackle the, the problem that we have you know, right across our rivers, chalk streams and beaches. Do we know how many years this has been going on, this a rather unpleasant practice? I'm sure somebody does, but I wouldn't know how long it's going on. No. What, we, what I do know is that we need to get a grip on it pretty soon. Yeah. And what do you think also about the fact water companies are making such big profits? 
well, I mean, the fact is they are making these enormous profits um, and yet they're allowing all this raw sewage to go into areas where people want to swim and, and enjoy. And I think that that's why uh, a tax on these profits is that exactly the, the right thing to do to make sure that they pay their fair share. Just finally, um, the Liberal Democrats are supporting this. It's your policy. What, uh, I, we don't know what the Conservatives will say. What would the Labour Party say? Have they indicated whether they'll support you in the division lobbies? Well, we don't, we don't know about that in particular. What we know that today the government is proposing uh, a very mediocre measure where it's talking about a gradual reduction uh, to the amount of sewage that goes into rivers. Uh, but the government hasn't attached any targets to that whatsoever. So it's very likely that Liberal Democrats will vote against the Tories measures in Parliament today. This new measure uh, that we're proposing, this new sewage tax, uh, will be pursuing that and we'll be trying to get as much support as possible. All right, that's Daisy Cooper. She's the deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with all our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your next speaker to play Daily Mail News. We're all inhaling up to 7,000 microplastic particles every day. So much, in fact, that experts are beginning to think they pose a similar threat to health as tobacco and asbestos. A new study used highly sensitive equipment to count the particles and found that they're 100 times more prevalent than previously believed. They come from clothes, toys and furnishings, as well as, get this, bottled water. I'm joined now by Dr Faye Kolseru, reader in biogeochemistry and environmental pollution at the University of Portsmouth, who led the study. 7,000 every day, that's astonishing. Where do they set, we swallow them, do we, or do we ingest them through our nose? How, do, how does it get inside us? So these particular ones I'm looking at are, I'm only looking at the inhalable fractions, so just right. the ones that we breathe in. Uh, there's a completely different method for us eating them and ingesting them. Right. And is either or more dangerous? At the moment, we don't know. There's, there's simply not enough information. But the feel of, of physicians around the country is that inhalation, breathing in of them, is likely to be more problematic because once they hit our lungs, they can damage them before they're expelled. Whereas the ones that go through our gut, our gut is very good at processing things and removing it. Now, this total of 7,000, if, if I've read your report rightly, is 100 times higher than was anticipated, which is why people are saying, experts are saying, this health threat could rank alongside asbestos or tobacco. Yes, so I I couldn't say on the health threat, that's not my area, Um, but what I will say is that the numbers are so high because we haven't looked at this very, very small particles before. Previously, estimates have been made from larger particles, but if you think about it, it makes sense that there are smaller ones, more small ones, because a big piece of plastic will break down into lots and lots and lots of little ones. So, so one piece of big plastic could actually be 50 or 100 little pieces once it's broken down. So it makes sense that you will see this, the numbers increase as you look at the smaller proportion. And what's worrying, your study found that often the offending materials are in our homes. So an eight-year-old girl who was part of your study, the the microplastic particles were in her bedding, carpet and soft toys, all of which were made from synthetic materials. Is Is that the key here, the synthetic materials? It really is because that's the source of them in our homes. Uh, What we found from looking at microplastics in the air is that we actually have 
a higher proportion of them in our homes than we do outside. So normally we think of air pollution and we think cars and we think outdoors. But actually, there is a pollution threat in our homes from air. And most of the plastic side of those particles is coming from the soft ones, the things people don't think are plastic. Uh, people tend to think of plastic as Tupperware uh, and hard, hard physical bottles. But actually, what we're breathing in tends to come from our clothes, from our carpets, from soft toys, cushions, etc. even, you know, the fabrics on our sofas. And the danger here, as I understand it, Doctor, is it affects your immunity, the ability to fight infections. It can affect our reproductive capacity. Potentially it could be carcinogenic uh, because the, the, the danger is these wretched things don't break down. Yes, that's the belief. I, I must add, we, we don't know yet exactly what they do. And the big thing is, is we don't know what thresholds. So if you breathe in one, it's unlikely to do any damage. But if it's 100, if it's 1,000, at what level does it become dangerous? And that's what we're trying to find out, what's, what we're really breathing in and also at what level they become more problematic. As we go into the future, the numbers of microplastics are likely to be higher because we're producing more and more plastic in the world. And all that plastic that's there at the moment is still there. It's just broken down into smaller bits. So, so these numbers will only go up. And at what point does it become dangerous? Uh, we don't know yet. So this, this is the starting point of, of this kind of work to find out how much is there and what do we need to do about it. Well, that was going to be my question, uh, Doctor. Um, do we have to try and get as much synth synthetic materials out of our home as possible? Obviously, as I said before, we don't know that it's doing us any harm, but there definitely won't be any benefits to Quite. breathing plastic particles in. So, yes, we should, if we can, if we can, and that, that really is something that only some people can afford to do, if we can change our carpets to uh, something that is non-synthetic. So instead of a nylon carpet, having a wool or even a wood floor, that's a huge, that, that will halve the number of microplastics in your house just there alone. But honestly, the best thing you can do is open a window. If, we, if we're following the COVID guidelines at the moment of good ventilation, that will also really help. It, it, it won't help the environment because the plastics are going outside, but at least we wouldn't be breathing them in, in in our home. Fascinating. What do you hope? I mean, the government will be reading this study. What do you hope they may do? I mean, is, I mean, is there a solution? Is there a, something you're proposing that should happen as a result of this study? Obviously, we need lots more funding to, to look at this to see if this is a real human threat because we don't mm. know at the moment. Um, and that not knowing makes it much harder to progress uh, and to decide what to do. So, so we need further funding to find out what threat they are. But also, yes, there's things that we can do around labelling, for example, uh, around clothing and carpets and, and fabrics. Uh, if you had a, perhaps a, a red traffic light system, red dot, green dot, orange dot about how many microplastics they're releasing that could inform people so that they know when they're going to buy it straight away they can see immediately instead of having to think what type of plastic is it how much is it shedding i think if we can condense that and help people make that decision it will probably drive the consumer to, to purchase better and therefore improve our health Fascinating stuff. That's Dr. Faye Cocero, who's a reader in biogeochemistry ge and environmental pollution at the University of Portsmouth, who led this really interesting study. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces, 
and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at Mel Plus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. Colleges at Oxford University are facing criticism for accepting what's been described as tainted and dirty money, millions of pounds, in fact, from the family fortune of the fascist Sir Oswald Mosley. The Alexander Mosley Charitable Trust was controlled by the late Max Mosley, the controversial privacy campaigner and one-time supporter of his father's overtly racist policies. He died in May at the age of 81. I'm joined now by Jake Wallace-Simons, his deputy editor of the Jewish Chronicle, who went to St Peter's College, Oxford, which has taken some of this tainted uh, multi-million pound money. Jake, what's your reaction? Well, I feel quite cross about it, to be honest. Uh, you know, St. Peter's obviously is very close to my heart, being my old college. Um, and this is the second time they seem to have had a blind spot with regard to allegations of anti-Semitism, because Ken Loach, if you recall, uh, was invited yeah, to St. Peter's back in February, and that caused a bit of a furore. So there does seem to be a bit of a pattern emerging. And I think that the thing that's particularly galling is this, that it seems like in the university world, uh, there's so much sensitivity towards busts of people and statues of people and stained glass windows of people and you know lectures yeah. named after people who've got links with the, the slave trade or or eugenics, even very tangential links. And yet when it comes to a direct link to fascism, uh, because of it, that affects particularly Jews, it seems like there's a sort of a blind spot that seems systematic, and that's what really sticks in the throat. It's almost as if anti-Semitism doesn't matter as much as the fact that there may be a statue in a quadrangle at Oxford to a, a, a businessman who doubtless gave millions in his day to the university, but because he made his money out of the slave trade, that's much more, much more um, controversial. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's quite funny, really, because I mean, even the Labour Party in 2018 said they wouldn't receive any more money from Max Mosley. But that was because yeah. he'd published a leaflet in the 60s, uh, which said that, that immigrants uh, would spread disease. And so it was the it was the sort of immigrant line that triggered them uh, rather than anything to do with anti-Semitism. And I think that that, that really is the, the double standard that we're looking at. Um, and I think that, you know, anti-Jewish racism does tend to be treated quite differently from other forms of racism. And I think that one of the reasons is that part of the mindset of anti-Semitism is that it ascribes to Jews a particularly sort of mysterious power behind the scenes, you know, banking, pulling pulling the strings behind the world's media. And that means that people who are sort of infected by that mindset think, well, it's not racism. I'm just punching up, aren't I? You know, whereas with black people, for example, I'm punching down. And so anti-Semitism infects the process quite early on and leads to these sorts of discrepancies that we see today. Uh, Do you think the uh, college, St. Peter's College, should give the money back? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that what I would like to see... Uh, is for the you know, Oxford University and other universities, it's not only Oxford, by the way, uh, to adopt the same standards towards anti-Semitism as it does towards racism. Now, whether that means giving the money back or not, I don't know. I mean, the, the general prevailing attitude towards racism in general seems to be, you know, take down statues, remove busts, rename lecture theatres. It isn't necessarily something that I would subscribe to. I mean, I'd be more inclined to suggest solutions like, you know, taking the money but making a point of doing something anti-fascist with it something like that. Um, you know, so personally, I'm not really uh, a subscriber to uh, cancel culture as a whole. But I think that given that the university world as a whole is, um, it would just be nice as a, as a first step to see anti-Semitism treated as seriously as all other kinds of racism. You do wonder as well if, if they're slightly embarrassed by all of this, Jake, because they didn't exactly announce it from the rooftops, did they, that they'd taken this money from Mosley. It was revealed in one of the Sunday papers. 
Exactly. I mean, I think it, you know, I mean, it couldn't be more obvious, could it? I mean, somebody who is uh, not only a fascist but an open card-carrying fascist who led Britain's only fascist party it has put his name to this money, and that's where it came from in the first place. It's pretty obvious. It's not going to make a good headline for the, for the university world, and I guess they knew they were running scared from the beginning. Uh, so it's not something that can be easily explained away. And this just sort of highlights. The, the, the sense that they sort of know deep down that they're doing something wrong here uh, in adopting these double standards. And uh, it looks like the chickens have come home to roost. Big story for the Jewish Chronicle this week. Absolutely. We're going to be covering it. So pick up your copy this week. I will. Always read it, Jake. That's Jake Wallace-Simons, who's deputy editor of the Jewish Chronicle, talking about that row over Mosley's money at Oxford. He was an appalling man. Let's not forget it. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood's here with the latest from the world of sport. So Liverpool, they lost, finally. They, they did, they lost an absolute cracker on Sunday. Uh, yeah, thrilling game. Uh, finished 3-2 uh, to West Ham at mm. the London Stadium. So Liverpool have been on a 25-game uh, unbeaten run, uh, has finally come to an end. And was, that, was that a modern record? Uh, no, not a huge record. Okay. It was just a just a, a pretty decent run for them. Uh, obviously, stretching back into last season, uh, so they lost. But in in and in West Ham beaten them. West Ham have leapfrogged them, and they're up to third in the table, which mm. is sensational for West Ham. It's great uh, to see one of these less glamorous clubs in the top four. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and they're playing really, really mm. good football. And David Moyes, obviously, who we talked about yeah. um, last week, has had his uh, his critics in the past. He wasn't a universally popular choice when he went back to West Ham to be their manager again because they had him before right. sacked him got someone else in then they were turned back to him so that wasn't sacked, a popular decision yeah he kept them up they, they got him in uh, he kept the team up then they sacked him at the end of the season and uh, they tried somebody else and then they turned back to him um, yeah about uh, so he was lots so two seasons ago or t- you know a season and a half ago um, and he's and they're now flying. They're absolutely uh, superb. Some of their players, like Declan Rice, is one of the best midfielders in the country. He's superb. Jared Bowen, who they've bought, has come on leaps and bounds. There's been some really clever recruitment, getting someone like Kurt Zuma, who they got in from Chelsea um, during the summer. Uh, they've been slightly fortunate in as much as they've not had many injuries at uh, West Ham. Uh, so that's helped. They've had a fairly consistent um, team so far this season. But yeah, great effort to be, as you say, up there mixing it with yeah. the big boys and in the in the uh, top four. Why couldn't they go on and win the championship? Well, they could do a Leicester, couldn't they? Yeah. They could do it. If they don't have any injuries, I mean, to be honest, I think that is probably fanciful because your likes of Man City, Chelsea um, and probably even Liverpool are too strong and they've got much more strength in depth. They could cope with injuries. I think West Ham, if they were to pick up two or three injuries to key players, they wouldn't have the strength in depth. City can cope with three injuries because they've got such a strong bench. Same with Chelsea, certainly. Maybe less so with Liverpool. But I think City and Chelsea will be too strong for them over the course of a whole season. Um, so, but you know, everyone said that about Leicester and they yeah. went on to win it, so you never know. And um, we won't dwell on it for long, Matt, but Manchester City beat Manchester United, yeah. Old Trafford 2 0, so renewed speculation about the manager. Well, we said, didn't we, that we, did. uh, we said Ollie would have one week's grace when they beat yeah. Tottenham yeah. Uh, last weekend, and we said as soon as they lose to Man City, the Which knives will on. be out again uh, and everyone will be going for him. And and, you know, rightly so, because they were appalling. They were absolutely abject. Man City beat them 2-0, could have beaten them 5 or 6, but they basically took their foot off the gas, were content to toy with them, basically, in the second half. It was almost uh, as humiliating, if not more so, uh, than when they lost 5-0 to Liverpool, um, because it felt like City were just having a laugh with them almost in the second half. It was completely men against boys. And Oli was just, you know, lost for ideas. So, 
how long he can go on for. He's now, there's now an international break, so he's got a couple of weeks to try and set things straight. Yeah. This is traditionally sort of sacking season, as right. you'll have seen. You Norwich know, Norwich got rid of their Villa got rid of their manager. Mm. Um, there's been about yeah five. Well, Nuno just went at Tottenham only last mm. week, so uh, it's sacking season. But Oli looks like so far he might escape through this international break, uh, but he's got to turn it around quick. Certainly has. Now, England are going to get make the semi-final of the cricket t- 2020? So they're in the semi-final on Wednesday against New Zealand. Um, is that they, the toughest draw, the best draw? Uh, well, the, the other semi-final is Pakistan, who've been in great form against Australia. So um, in New Zealand, obviously, the team we beat in the 50-over World Cup mm. final when it went down to the super-over. So they're going to be really hard to beat. They've got a great captain in Kane Williamson. They've got two great uh, opening bowlers in Southie and Bolt. So it's tough. You know, when you're in the semi-finals, everyone's going to be tough. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Who knows? I think they all would win a difficult game. This is going to be really difficult. They've just lost uh, Jason Roy, their star opening batsman, who injured his calf in Saturday's oh, game dear. against South Africa. He is out for the tournament now, so that is a massive blow for England. Uh, and they lost that game against South Africa on Saturday, so it feels like their momentum's just ebbing away, mm. uh, which is just the wrong time for that to happen. But you know, they're such a good team, they're such a good one-day side, they're such a good limited overside that they could easily, you know. Um, knock New Zealand over, but it's going to be tough. All right, that's Matt Gatwood. He's the deputy sports editor. Oh, Farrell Smith, got to ask you about that. <laughs> Who are they then? So England rugby, uh, yeah. on Saturday they played against Tonga. Oh, they won by about 900. They won 900 plays three or yeah. something like that. But Owen Farrell, the normal fly half, the key position yeah. in the team, he was ruled out through COVID on the eve of the match. Yeah. Marcus Smith, who has been a big cry, a big clamouring to get him in the team, he had a little niggle, so he didn't start. So someone else started called George Furbank. But now Farrell's uh, COVID test has proved to be a false positive. Right. So he is now available on Saturday when England play Australia. Mm. Marcus Smith should be fit because when he came on at the weekend in the uh, last half hour against Tonga was superb. So now Eddie Jones has got a big decision to make. Does he play as usual captain in Andy Farrell? uh, Owen Farrell, sorry. Or does he go to this young star uh, who lit up the stage at Twickenham on Saturday Mm. and give him his head and give him a chance against a proper... I mean, no disrespect to Tonga, but this is now against proper opposition in Australia. Is it a friendly? These are all some internationals, so they're all proper test matches. Uh, But there's no kind of, you know, there's not a kind of World Cup or anything, Mm. but they're they're proper test matches. Is it Twickenham? It's at Twickenham, and they got Australia this weekend, and then the following weekend they got the world champion South Africa. So will he go for Smith, who he's, you know, he's never seen start a game before in a a proper big test match, or will he go back to the Mm. tried and trusted Owen Farrell? Anyone who likes exciting rugby wants to see Smith play because he's brilliant. Yeah, I think some of my, I think one of my colleagues, Richard Kay, is going to the rugby on Saturday. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's gonna, it, you know, it could be great. Australia, mm. obviously, the old enemies, etc., yeah. etc. Yeah. Uh, packed Twickenham, uh, and it would be great to see this young lad uh, given his chance. Uh, we'll talk about it near the time. I we will. Think. All right, that's Matt Gatwood, deputy sports editor. Thanks for joining us. So it's becoming increasingly popular apps which let you hire out your clothes. The Prime Minister's wife, Carrie Johnson, of course, paid just £45 to hire her wedding dress, which would have retailed at 2870 Celebrities from Holly Willoughby to Lady Amelia Windsor use dress-sharing platforms such as her, My Wardrobe HQ and By Rotation. The writer Libby Galvin selected seven dresses to lend to strangers via two rental agencies and she's written about it in Female Today and she joins me now. So do you get the dresses back, Libby, after a while or do you are they lent out permanently now? Well, that's a very good question. I will be getting my dresses back. It, it depends on what 
format you choose to lend your dresses out. So if you choose to manage your wardrobe yourself, um, you will get your dresses back in between lending. Uh, but if you, for a, for a le less commission, you decide for somebody else to do the job for you on one of the rental apps to take your dresses, store them and send them out, clean them, take them back, etc., you won't get your dresses back until you specifically ask for them back and end renting them. Right, and, and what sort of prices can you rent them out for, Libby? So it really depends on the dress. Um, something like a ghost or a Rixo dress might rent out for about £9 a day. That's a dress that's maybe £200 originally. Um, yeah. And more expensive dresses will rent out for more. Uh, and so that could be quite a nice little income. It could be. It could be, but it is fought with risk. You know, the dress, the dress could not come back or the dress could come back stained or damaged. So it, mm. as long as you don't have too much of an emotional attachment to these dresses, Yes, it can be a nice little earner. I actually made 8.6% return on my uh, investment, so to speak, which beats the stock market. So I was very happy with myself. Yeah. Now, there was a bit of a disaster there, wasn't there? Because didn't one dress, a, yes. a particular favourite of yours, vanish completely into the ether? It did. It did. Um, after a lot of detective work, I eventually managed to find it myself. But, you know, that was down to luck and a story for another day, really. Um, had it right. gone forever, I would have been very upset. But the rental platform did cover me um, and paid me back for the dress. Um, right. So, you know, financially, you're kind of in the clear, but emotionally, if you're attached to a lovely dress, if it's something you wore to something special originally, mm. if you wanted to wear it again, you could end up quite upset. And you, won't, you don't mind the idea that you lend your dresses out and then they may come back to you and you'll wear them again, even though somebody else no, has yes. worn them. Doesn't oh, bother yeah, you? definitely. Not at all, not in the slightest. And I've, and I've borrowed dresses on the apps as well, which... That's the most stress-free thing. Uh, yeah. Get them to send you a dress, you borrow it, try not to drop red wine all over it and send it yes. back and you've got no problems. <laughs> Absolutely. And do they, how do they, is there like a quality control, Libby, whereby the uh, agencies such as um, My Wardrobe HQ by Rotation, they have to see the, they have to see the, the frock in the flesh, if, if you like, or can you just zoom the picture of, the, of it um, to them? That's a very good question. So for by rotation, because you manage when you manage it yourself, and um, yeah. you send them a load of pictures um, mm. of the dress. So they kind of yes, they work totally online with that. Um, my wardrobe, if they are um, managing the dress for you, they of course see it themselves, so they know without right. a doubt that it's absolutely fine. Um, on by rotation, it's a bit like eBay. You get reviews from your customers. So if you were to send out a dodgy dress or a fake dress or something like that, you would very quickly get a bad rating and no one would want to rent from you anymore. Right. What's the best, best dress you've ever um, rented from? That I've borrowed from somebody else? Yeah, so you borrowed from somebody else, yeah. Oh, I, I borrowed a beautiful um, yellow and black sort of... A dress that made me look a bit like a wasp, some would say. Oh. So it was quite an, quite an out-there dress, um, which I absolutely loved wearing. But the beauty of that was I probably wouldn't have bought it because it was a bit of a crazy dress, but it was really fun to wear the once um, yeah. and, you know, have, have pictures of me wearing it, but probably wasn't ever going to come out of my wardrobe again if I had bought it. So that was a really good one. I get you. And do you fess up when you're wearing somebody else's uh, dress? Oh, I tell everyone. I tell do everyone, you? yeah. Yes, yeah. I feel that because it's becoming more and more popular and people really yeah. want to know about what it's really like to do it. Um, and you know what women are like. If you tell them they look wonderful, they only want to tell you that it costs five pounds in the charity shop, and you know yes. it's, it's just an old rag. So um, it kind of works well for that. 
Fascinating. And if it's good enough for the Prime Minister's wife, why not for the rest of us? Well, indeed. Well, indeed. <laughs> yeah. What did, what did you think of her dress, by the way, her wedding dress? I thought it was lovely. I mean, it wasn't the kind of dress I would have chosen. It was a bit more hippie-ish. But uh, I think, what, what's my wedding dress doing now? It's hanging over the banisters in my mum's house, as it has been for several years now. It's probably got a massive crease from the banister in it. Rent it out, and you don't have that problem. Exactly. Are you going to rent your wedding dress out, or, or is, that, is that too, too close to home? I think not yet. Ask me again in a year or two. Right. Will your husband mind? Oh, I don't think he'd notice. <laughs> he wouldn't mind in the slightest. Oh, that's very interesting. That's men for you. Uh, Libby, great stuff. <laughs> uh, really interesting piece today. That's Libby Galvin, who wrote about seven dresses to lend to strangers via two rental agencies. Do read it. It's great fun. That's all we've got time for today for the latest from the Daily Mail. Download the Mail Plus app every week at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Yeah.